We're going to have our main Bible reading now, which is Revelation chapter 12 and 13. And you can find it there on page 1034 of the Church Bibles. Revelation 12, starting at verse 1, says this. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down the third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But a child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And he was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. 
It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. The authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life for the Lamb that was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence, and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs that is allowed, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast. It deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom, that the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Well, do keep that text open. We'll be looking at that together. There's an outline of where we're going in your service sheet. Uh, Do make use of that. And there will be an opportunity at the end for any questions or comments. But before we go any further, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is truthful, good and sovereign. And we pray please as your people in our response to your word, that we would vindicate who you are um, by our response, that we would listen, trust, and obey your word, and therefore your word would be re-emplaced in us as your redeemed people. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Texts like we just read raise important questions about the origins of evil. And so before we take a look at our text this morning, we're going to just step back for a moment and look at the framework from which we're to understand evil and its origins. And to do this, we need to go back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis, we are introduced to God as the uncreated creator. He has no rival. Evil is not to be understood as eternally existing, because in the beginning, it was God and him alone. In Genesis chapter 1, one of the things that's stressed about God's creation is that it is good. So again, that rules out that evil 
is intrinsic to creation. Because in the beginning of creation, there was no evil. Because everything that was created was created good. And that therefore leads us to locate evil in terms of creation that has subsequently become corrupted and distorted and twisted. That is to say that the origins of evil, just from these few chapters, we can actually say quite a lot about where to locate the origins of evil. It's not eternal. It's not intrinsic to creation. But it's creation that has become twisted and corrupted. Well, with that in mind, if we turn to our text this morning, we might think at first glance that the account in Revelation chapter 12 is a description of that corrupting and twisting. That it's about the fall of Satan, how he became from being good to being evil. But that's not what's in view here. In Revelation 12, it doesn't concern the origins of Satan, but his defeat, which ultimately leads to his end. In terms of orientating ourselves in uh, the chapter, there are a number of characters. Uh, there is the woman, uh, there's the woman's child, and there is the dragon. And in terms of identifying these, well, the dragon is identified in verse 9 as the serpent, who is Satan, the devil. And one of the things that we're finding about apocalyptic literature is that as you read on through the book, symbolism is explained to us. Here, the dragon, we're told, is the serpent, the devil. The child is identified as Jesus Christ. If you notice there in verse 5, it's messianic language of Psalm 2 that's used of him regarding his resurrection and ascension. The only really tricky one is the woman and her offspring. We might initially think the woman is Mary because she gives birth to the Messiah. But does that really fit uh, with what we read in chapter 12, verse 17? when we learn that she goes on to have many other offspring who are identified as those, quote, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And we may then identify the woman as the people of God, as faithful Israel from whom the Messiah comes. She is, in the first instance, the people of God to whom the promises were given and from whom the Christ comes. It's a grotesque picture that we're given, for the dragon is waiting for the delivery of the child in order to devour him. But actually, he's unable to do so, and he is taken up to heaven in victory, and the woman is kept safe. At this point in the text, John's vision looks at this event from a different perspective. 
There's now a battle in heaven, verse 7, and Satan is thrown down, verse 9. And this is to be understood as parallel to the events concerning the birth and ascension of the Son. That Christ's victory results in the victory over Satan. That is the throwing down from heaven to earth. Is what was going on in Luke chapter 10 that we looked at earlier. That in the coming of Christ is the defeat in principle of Satan. Now we don't need to be worried here that there's nothing in verses 5 and 6 about the cross and resurrection of the Messiah. This vision isn't trying to unpack everything and so is happy to mention only the birth and the ascension of the Messiah. And don't forget, what happened to the Lamb um, has already been explained to us back in Revelation chapter 5. The purpose for uh, this omission in Revelation 12 is to highlight the victory at Christ's ascension. Psalm 2 prophesied that God's Son will be victorious. He will defeat all worldly enemies and be enthroned as ruler over the earth. Now notice that this, at this point, this is not his end. That will happen later in Revelation chapter 20, when he's thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. Here, what we've got, precisely that because he's now been thrown from heaven to the earth, and precisely because he knows his time is short, verse 12, and unable to get to Christ, he turns against those who are identified with the Christ, the church, and he vents his anger at them. It's at this point in chapter 13 we're introduced to two other creatures, two beasts. And the link between chapter 12 and chapter 13 is that these two beasts do the dragon's bidding. Their authority is related to the dragon's authority. They're not acting independently, but they're working together for a common goal. And they help us to understand the character of his rage. What is his attack? What is his plan? How does he wage war against the church? And the two beasts work in slightly different ways, but complementary ways. Crudely put, you could say that the first beast is the bad cop and the second beast is the good cop. The first beast is violent and causes much suffering among the people of God, verse 9, and that they will be taken captive and fall by the sword. And it's important to recognise that this is all in the context of chapter 12. God protects his people, but does his protection mean that they won't really suffer anything? Not according to this verse. According to this verse, they will be killed. The second beast is a little different. Unlike the first beast that comes out of the sea, 
this beast comes out of the earth. And we learn that verse 14, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. So in contrast to the first beast, who's portrayed as much more openly hostile to God's people, this beast is more seductive. He is deceptive. He seeks to deceive the church. Later on in the, in, uh, the book of Revelation, he'd be identified as the false prophet. Now, in terms of the good cop, bad cop routine, the first beast tries to scare the pants off you, and the second beast tries to seduce you. In either case, both are after the same thing. The aim of both, the first and the second beast, is the worship of the dragon. And this analysis provides us with a framework to understanding the sufferings that are peculiar to the people of God. There is this element of persecution, and there is this element of deception. Now at this point, we can step back a little bit and consider how the dragon and the two beasts are portrayed. And this will link us back to what uh, we said in the introduction. For it is interesting that there are three creatures and that there is a relationship between them. The first beast serves the dragon, chapter 13, verse 4, and the second beast serves the first beast, chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. Now, interestingly, uh, the Gospel of John speaks widely about how the Son is sent from the Father and receives authority from the Father to say and do what the Father has given him to say and do. And likewise, the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son, and he testifies that Jesus is the Son, and that God is the Father. And this subordination among the persons of the Trinity is seen in the relationship between the dragon and the two beasts. The first beast is from the dragon, and the second beast glorifies the first beast. In this way, the dragon and the two beasts ape the Trinity. They are a depiction of a Trinity that is corrupted and distorted. Now, you might like to explore in your own studies the range of different elements that um, make that up. But just for now, let me highlight to you seven parallels between Christ and the first beast. So are you ready? There's seven. Number one, both have swords. Two, both have followers who have their names written on their foreheads. Three, both have horns. Four, both are slain. Five, both rise to new life and are given new authority. Six, both have authority over every tribe, tongue, people and nation. Seven, both receive universal worship. Now these parallels between Christ 
and the first beast. Show how the beast is set up as the supreme enemy of the Christ and his people. And these observations support what we saw in the introduction, that evil is a twisting or corruption of good. It's the idea that evil isn't like a thing in itself. All it can do is take God's reality and then twist it and corrupt it. In this example, the first beast is a corruption of Christ. Now, all of this is a powerful observation because it puts evil in its place. However terrifying and grotesque evil is, and how seriously we need to take it, it nevertheless puts evil in its place. It is creation gone off. And this inevitably provides hope. For creation that has gone off can be dealt with by the creator. That which has become twisted can be straightened out. And I think that this therefore comes to us partly as the way God protects us from these onslaughts because we understand the true nature of evil. It's good that's become corrupted. It's creation that's gone off and therefore is no threat to the creator. I mean, if evil was eternal, it would always be there and we'd just go from one to the other. If evil was intrinsic to creation, well, we'd just have to learn to live with it. But if it's creation gone off, then it can be dealt with. That which is twisted can become straightened. Well, as we conclude, it won't have escaped your notice that here we are given at the end of the first beast and at the end of the second beast instruction as to what we're supposed to do with this revelation. Now, we've already discussed in recent weeks God's purpose in suffering. And that in itself is new to some people, that God has a purpose in suffering. That all of the suffering, included the suffering inflicted by the dragon and the two beasts, is under the sovereignty of God and is part of his sovereign purpose. And we've already considered in early weeks how Suffering brings about the purification and perseverance of the saints and how suffering, the same suffering, brings about God's purposes of judgment on those who are not sealed by him. And here in Revelation 13, there's further insight regarding God's purpose in suffering and how he calls his people to respond. Look at what it says after the section of the first beast in chapter 13, verse 10. 13, verse 10. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. 
And then look at what it says after the section on the second beast, chapter 13, verse 18. This calls for wisdom. And you can see why these things are required. In persecution, we are to endure and remain faithful. We're not to compromise. If we compromise, the persecution may stop, but then we are no longer his faithful witnesses in this world. What we're called to in persecution is faithfulness and endurance. Our response to the second beast is put in terms of a call for wisdom. That is understanding and discernment. And that, of course, makes perfect sense when we see that the threat here is more deceptive and seductive. The beast who would seek to deceive the elect, if it were possible. Now, we've already seen in previous weeks how God's people are sealed and therefore kept from this deception. But the way we're kept from this deception is to be wise, to know God, to know the truth, to take full advantage of knowing the whole counsel of God, that we would be rich in understanding and therefore be able to recognise error and refute it. What are Christians called to? Endurance, faithfulness and discernment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, ever since Genesis 3, uh, Satan's defeat has been much anticipated. And we thank you in the coming of Christ, and not least his uh, ascension to victory, uh, marks the defeat of uh, this serpent and is the beginning of the end as Christ reigns and will uh, ultimately bring about the end of all those who oppose him and bring about your new creation. But we thank you for uh, this um, uh, heavenly um, perspective that precisely because he knows that he's done for, he uses these last days to rage against your people. We thank you for the assurance that that's part of your sovereign purposes for us. And we thank you that we can understand the nature of those assaults in terms of persecution and deception. And we pray, please, that we would take full advantage of um, uh, this revelation to be equipped and therefore to be assured that you will keep us because we're sealed and that we would be faithful and endure and discerning um, and persevere to the end. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Okay, folks, I said at the beginning, there's opportunity now for questions and comments. That time is here. Yes, Matt.
Okay, so initially when you read um, in chapter 12, verse 1, which says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Um, You were thinking, oh, that sounds a bit like the world, as in creation. Okay. Um, And then the offspring would be humanity. Okay, so... Um, let me just grab my notes. So, I mean, interesting. I suppose, in terms of just um, approach with apocalyptic, I think it's one of these things where I guess when you first read stuff, you might be thinking like, "Oh, this sounds like it could be this." Um, so, you know, it could be, could it be the world? And it's giving birth to humanity. But then when you read on, you you might then have to go back and adjust what you first thought symbolism represents. So I think when you get to chapter 5, and you read there that she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, for the child was caught up to God and to his throne, that then you're thinking, hang on, the one whom this woman gives birth to is, is, is a particular male child, and a description of him. Uh, regulars here, you probably um, um, have some recognition, but sorry, not just regulars, but because we refer quite a lot to Psalm 2. But Psalm 2 is uh, the Messianic Psalm, and we're given there a portrait of the Messiah who will rule the nations uh, with a rod of iron. And therefore, and then the fact he's taken up to God and to his throne, we're then thinking, oh, that that sounds more like birth of the Messiah and um, his enthronement. And then that's kind of confirmed then as you read on and you think actually his enthronement, his victory, then leads to the defeat of the dragon is he's thrown down from heaven to earth. And then with the wider scripture, you know, like Luke 10, you think, oh, wow, that's that's exactly the, that's, that's of a piece of the vision that Jesus had when the disciples were driving out demons. What they were to understand from that is that he saw the fall of Satan from heaven. In other words, Satan's now met his match. You know, the serpent crush has come. The promise of Genesis 3 has been fulfilled. So... So I think that's, so I, in that sense, I kind of think, as you read through, you can have a, your first sort of stab at what you think the symbolism might be, but it probably is worth holding loosely to that, because you read on, you then think, oh, okay, that then helps you to then adjust. In terms of the um, symbolism, and that's why I suppose you could then think, oh, is the woman like Mary, or is the woman like um more than that, um, but that's the that, that, that's that's then the question you end up asking. In terms of the um, what she appears like, um, interestingly, she's she's got um, twelve stars, which is kind of again reading symbolism. Could the twelve be? 
12 tribes, could this be Israel, faithful Israel, that sort of thing. Um, on a head of crown, I mean, that could be the idea that actually, again, it's sort of a Psalm, Psalm 8 or back to Genesis 1 in terms of they're, they're the, the purpose of humanity is to rule the earth and subdue it. So that could be God's purpose, isn't that? Clothed with the sun and the moon. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Maybe check the commentary. But I think that's kind of, in my mind, that's the kind of process I'm doing. Is that you happier? Yeah. Cool. But interestingly, I think all of that does help you because this is a popular place where people think this is Genesis 3 in terms of Satan being thrown from heaven to the earth in terms of it's about the beginnings of Satan, as it were. Whereas, obviously, that analysis puts us in a different phase of redemptive history where we've got the victorious ascension of Christ and that leads to the defeat and downfall. So we're, we're at the fulfilment end of the Genesis 3 promise. Cool. Anybody else? Nikki. Yeah, it's a funny one. So, um, 13, 9, and 10, um, there's like a quote. It says, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. So, as far as I'm aware, it's not a direct quote from anywhere, but I think it's been indented because there are... I mean, to be fair, it's, um, there's no indentations in the original text, so this is a kind of an, an editor's um, decision. But I think it's this... So, in terms of the text, this seems to be um, going back to verse unpacking verse 7 where it says also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them and so this is unpack, unpacking the conquering that the first beast has on the saints so basically uh, be taken into captive captivity and slain by the sword um, which is interesting because you have again got this um um because you might think, you know, hang on, I thought we conquer. Because, you know, like the end of all the seven letters, it's to the one who conquers, I give you this. But there is, again, it goes back to this whole sort of parody. There is a conquering of the beast and a conquering of Christ and his people. And the conquering of the beast uh, can include killing someone or taking them captive. Um, but the conquering of the Christian is different in that um, the Christian conquers by faithfully enduring that death only to find that they don't die in the second death but are given the crown of life. So you've got this kind of, you know, the beast and those who worship him 
um, the Lamb and those who worship him. And there is this sort of parallel that there is a there is the wrath of the beast and there's the wrath of the Lamb. And if you if you're if you have the mark of the Lamb, you'll face the wrath of the beast and are conquered by him. But if you have the mark of the Lamb, so if you have the mark of the beast, you'll face the wrath of the Lamb and be conquered by him. So you kind of that that's what's sort of going on here. So they're not they're not the same wrath, they're not the same conquering. Um, and obviously the whole context is behind it is that the lamb is sovereign and therefore he he wins um, I mean one thing it would be interesting to follow up because I think um, in the the Isaiah reference I, I didn't have time to, to look it up but it's interesting the way it puts it if anyone is to be taken captive to captivity he goes if anyone is to be slain with the sword with the sword must he be slain and I think again this seems to like um fit with this idea that this is all part of God's sovereign purposes, that suffering is part of his purpose. And so therefore, if a saint is to be captive, or if a saint is to be slain, then that will happen. But that isn't contrary to God's will, that's God's purpose for those saints. And therefore, the way that those saints conquer is this call for faith and endurance, so they don't compromise, but they go through with it. I think that's it's okay. Time for more? Victor. Yes, thank you. I was hoping to get away with that, but thank you for that question. Uh, chapter 13, verse 18, it says, This calls for wisdom, that the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man, and his number is 666. And it all seems a bit cryptic. Um, so, um, So let me give you a couple of possibilities. So one approach um, is the idea that uh, we're supposed to work out the identity of this one. So when it says, um, you know, calculate the number of the beast, for it's the number of a man, and his number is 666. And there's this whole thing. I can't remember, is it, is it called Gamali? How do you say it? Gamali something. Okay, it's a word like Gamali. Okay, which is basically where letters, you don't need to understand this because this is not what we're going to be doing, but this is just so you get a flavor of where people have gone. Letters have numbers, so you can get like a 1 to an A and 2 to a B, 3 to a C. And that means if you have a, a person in history, like, say, Hitler, you can add up his numbers or multiply them or do, do some calculation with the numbers. And if you get 666, he's your man. He is the second beast. Um, and you know, that's been done. I mean, the only thing is, is that 
you know, the mass, you can kind of do anything with mass. And so uh, you end up just, you can make any, you can make 666 with any kind of name by just doing the right sums. So it kind of feels a bit random. And it does raise this bigger question of, are we trying to work out who the second beast is? You know, is it the, actually, probably, we wouldn't be thinking the second beast is Hitler. Probably be thinking the second beast is the Pope in terms of he's the false prophet in terms of deceiving people. So then do you kind of like, who's the latest Pope? You know, work out his name, do the calculation, 666, he's, he's the one. Now, if we just step back a bit, there's a few problems with that approach. Um, let me mention two. One is that it's very sort of um, self-centered because it, it inevitably the person you identify is the person in our generation. Then everyone, whatever generation is, they lay claim to that person. So it doesn't kind of work. Whatever generation you're in, it's like, well, we found the one, and therefore you just think it's um, is that. Um, it doesn't work in that sense because you, we're just so focused on our world, whereas the scope of Revelation is actually this whole period between Christ's first and second coming. So just to read it in terms of our own experience seems a bit um, focused on us. Another danger will be is if you identify somebody as a second beast, then I guess that also then puts your guard down that all the other, nobody else is involved in that. You know, he's the one to watch. Um, whereas it could be the case that actually it's much more sophisticated that and to be deception uh, and falsehood, I mean, it's everywhere. And so you can't really pin that on one person and say, as long as you don't listen to that person, we're going to be kept safe from deception. Deception is all over the place. So, and so, so I, I, I think in the first instance, when it says this calls for wisdom, I think it's that we have an awareness that um, there is um, plenty of deception still out there. That there's, um, we're still prone to idolatry. We're still prone to thinking wrongly about God. And there are people that will take us in that direction. And so I think this call for wisdom is, is a call for discernment. And I think it's a broad category. Now how, how can we be discerning? Well, I think in the first instance, we need to get to know God. Because as we know God, then we will know what God is not like. So when someone says, oh, this, actually that's, that's not who we know God to be. A final thing would be 666 is an interesting title. Why 666? And I think one interesting thing to observe is the whole symbolicness of numbers in Revelation. Because one number that we've seen a lot is seven. Um, there are seven churches, seven letters to the churches, seven seals, seven trumpets. And in many ways, seven seems to be a positive number um, and it kind of goes it's as old as Genesis 1. God created the world in seven days. 
And so it may well be that this six, and this is what the uh, commentator says, is, is a number of imperfection, um, in the words of the origins of evil, corruption, twisting, a falling short, and therefore um, the revelation is to give him the number 666, which further identifies him as this aping trinity, this imperfection that we need to um, uh, be uh, warned against and not to be deceived by. Which I think then, that, that seems to be a much more helpful way of using the numbers rather than trying to calculate, make a calculation to find out who is who adds up to 666, but that the significance of the 6 is, is it's, it's a it's an imperfect seven, which you know kind of fits with then the depiction of a dragon and two beasts. Okay, I'll well, we'll leave it there. We can chat later. Let's um, let's draw stumps, and we're going to sing. Um, again, I will glory in my redeemer. We've been uh, considering how on the earth. Satan rages against the church. It's seen in terms of persecution and deception. But what do we learn about how Christians conquer, about how Christians conquer the rage of Satan? And it's important to recognize that the suffering inflicted by the two beasts is in the context of chapter 12 and the rest of the book. God protects his people. They are sealed. But does that protection mean that they won't really suffer anything? Not according to Revelation. They may well be killed. At this point, it's helpful to make a distinction between being protected from such things and being protected in such things. If we think that God will protect us from such things, then we'll be expecting not to experience them. But if we think that God will protect us in such things, well, then we'll be expecting to experience them and endure through them. And whilst God may spare us many things, a great deal of the faithfulness that's called for in the book of Revelation is faithfulness in the face of suffering. It's a common theme in the New Testament. For example, in Romans 8, Paul speaks of being more than conquerors. And by this, he doesn't mean that we can expect to live, live, above, live above it all. For in the context of Romans 8, it's been martyred and harried like sheep. Rather, the conquering has to do with persevering and a willingness to face persecution and death. And hence, the section on the first beats ends with, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the heavenly perspective that the book of Revelation provides. Thank you that we learn not only about expectation concerning the suffering that's peculiar to your people, but also how you call us to respond.
Help us not to be surprised by the suffering that we face, but be reassured of your purpose in suffering, knowing that the time is short until you renew all things. Help us this day to be those who are characterised by endurance, faithfulness and wisdom. Amen. Our last song is O Church Arise.